morning all. My name's Genevieve, if I haven't met you yet, and I'll be reading today's Bible passages. So we have two readings today, the first starting in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40, and then we'll be flicking back to Psalm 119. So please follow along in your Bibles, in the church Bibles, and on the screen behind me. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And then flicking back to Psalm 119, verses 1 to 8. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. And then picking up again in verse 105 to 112. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it, that I will not, that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your word. Accept, Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. I hate the way you look at me, the way you cut your hair. I hate the way you drive my car. I hate it when you stare. I hate your big dumb combat boots and the way you read my mind. I hate you so much it makes me sick. It even makes me rhyme. I hate it. hate the way you're always right. I hate it when you lie. I hate it when you make me laugh. Even worse, when you make me cry. I hate it when you're not around and the fact you didn't call. But mostly, I hate the way I don't hate you. Not even close. Not even a little bit. Not even at all. Good morning. It is great to be with you. <clears throat> Some of you may recognize that poem from the 1999 film, Ten Things I Hate About You, uh, with Julia Stiles and Heath Ledger. It's a poem that expresses the author's feelings for someone who, by all accounts, they should hate. Someone who makes them feel bad, who, who makes them cry, who wears big dumb combat boots. And yet it turns out that, in truth, the author of the poem didn't hate the person they were writing about but loved them instead. The psalm we're looking at today, Psalm 119, is a very long poem. 
uh, which speaks about God's law. Now, unlike the poem I just read, it doesn't express hatred for the law, uh, but perhaps sometimes we feel that it should. These days when we think of law, and particularly biblical law, uh, there's often an accompanying feeling of, of oppression, the idea that law is a killjoy, that it, it takes away our fun. I'm, I'm sure you've heard these ideas before. But the author of the psalm doesn't view things that way. For the author, God's law doesn't kill joy, it brings joy. It brings hope and it brings life. Rather than the law being something to be avoided or followed out of fear that you might be punished, this psalm expresses the law as something to be embraced, something to rejoice in. And today we're going to look at and see if we can find out where that joy comes from. Probably the most well-known feature of Psalm 119 is its length that's been mentioned today. At 176 verses, it's not only the longest psalm, but it's the longest chapter in the entire Bible. And as we said, the, the focus is God's law, which seems a little bit strange considering that just two chapters before, in Psalm 117, we have the shortest chapter of the Bible at only two verses, which concentrates on God's love. If word count is a measure of importance, then perhaps the psalmist has a different idea of what's important to what we do. The next key feature of Psalm 119, and one that's not necessarily obvious in our, in our English translations, is it's written as a huge acrostic. Uh, there's 22 stanzas in the poem, and each stanza has eight verses. And within each stanza, every line begins with the same letter in the Hebrew, le- in the Hebrew alphabet. There's 22 letters in the alphabet, 22 stanzas. And if you look at your Bibles, you might see each block marked with a Hebrew letter. Now, when I suggested that I might write a sermon on this psalm, someone, perhaps unwisely, made the suggestion I should frame my sermon likewise. Apprehensively, I thought I might give it a go. Articulately, I put my mind to it. And to start with, it was easy. And so I began. But soon my confidence turned to trepidation. Because I knew danger was approaching. Barriers to my language skills would soon arise. Bearing down on my consciousness was the approach of challenges. Challenges raised by the English language itself. Certain letters that I knew would be difficult to deal with. Because <laughs> there ain't many words that begin with Q, X or Z. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever tried writing an acrostic of any length, uh, but the point of that silly exercise is to demonstrate the effort the psalmist must have gone to in writing this psalm. And perhaps due to the limitations that the acrostic format puts onto the psalm, uh, we find that this isn't the sort of psalm that takes an idea and and builds it gradually over time. Instead, it, it has a number of themes that just weave in and out throughout the entire psalm. And so today we'll look at some of those key ideas and themes. It does mean we'll be jumping around in the psalm a bit. And if you get the chance, I do encourage you to read it from beginning to end. It doesn't take all that long, and it's well worth doing. 
The psalm begins with a general call to faithfulness in the first three verses. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. For any of you who have spent any time reading the Psalms, the words may sound familiar as they echo the first few lines of Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Then for the rest of the psalm, the author switches to what can best be described as a prayer. It's a poem from the author to God. There's three main ideas from this psalm I'd like to bring bring out today. In the spirit of our acrostic, they all begin with the same letter. You could say that this sermon is brought to you by the letter L. And the three ideas are liberty, light, and life. So the first idea is that we'll look at today is that God's law brings liberty. Most people these days would say that liberty or freedom uh, comes when we're released from restrictions. The less laws, the better. We should just be able to do what we want. That's, that's real freedom. But let's look at verse 45. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. Now, precept is essentially a command, but it refers more to the nitty-gritty of the details of the law rather than the big ideas. Because the author has spent time soaking in the details of God's law, he says he can walk about in freedom. It's probably not the way we normally think of freedom. But for those living in the time of the psalmist, everyone had gods that they worshipped. Israel was supposed to worship Yahweh, although they didn't always do that very well. Um, But other nations worshipped Baal or Ashtoreth or Dagon or or other gods. Part of the problem with these, these other gods is they were often seen as fickle. You just never knew where they, when they might or might not turn up, and you never really knew how to please them, and you weren't sure whether your actions would bring the gods blessing, or you might end up being killed in battle or through a famine or some other disaster caused by the god being generally grumpy. But that's not the psalmist's experience. For him, God had revealed himself to his people through his law. And so the psalmist knew what was required in order to stay right with God. In verse 9, he says, How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. And so the law was actually a source of delight. He says, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I delight in your decrees. It was through God's law that the psalmist gained freedom, liberty that's found in God's commands, not in the release from them. This all begs the question then, which of the laws in the Bible do we follow? It's been estimated that there are about 613 laws in the Old Testament. So do we still follow all of them? None of them? Just the Ten Commandments? Or just the ones about morality? Now, there are, of course, a number of fairly obvious ones that we probably should follow, like do not kill, do not steal, and so on. 
And there are a whole group of laws that are more ritualistic in nature, to do with sacrifices or eating of certain foods or observing certain festivals uh, that don't really seem relevant to us. Uh, because we don't live in the ancient Near East, and our culture isn't the culture of the ancient Near East. And maybe that's the key. The laws we see in the Old Testament weren't given to the Israelites in a vacuum. They didn't just fall from heaven as something brand new. All the laws that were given to Israel were based on the culture that they lived in. Many of the laws may have mirrored laws from the nations around them, but all of them were based on two ideas. What were those ideas? Well, we read them before in our reading from Matthew. When Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. God's plan for us is to live as his people in relationship with him and in relationship with each other. And this then is how we should approach uh, the commands in the Bible. We shouldn't look at God's law and try to decide which laws we should keep and which ones we can ignore. That's, that's asking the wrong question. It's, it's not the point. Instead, we should read all 613 laws as the way which God provided Israel a way to be in relationship with him and in relationship with each other. And read them as a model of how he continues to provide a way for us to be in relationship with him and relationship with each other. And it's through this idea that the psalmist is able to take delight and find liberty and freedom in God's law. The next aspect of God's law that Psalm 119 brings out is another L, and that is that God's law brings light. One of the most well-known verses from this psalm is the one we read earlier, Psalm, uh, verse 105. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. Now I wonder, how many of you here have a smartphone? Most of you. How many times have you or someone you've been talking to had, had a question about a past event or something else and either you or they have whipped out their phone and had a quick look on Google and got the answer? It's astounding how much information we have pretty much instant access to these days. And the general consensus seems to be that having access to so much information somehow makes us smarter and more intelligent and wiser. In reality, of course, there's a difference between having access to knowledge and actually having knowledge. If I go on an aeroplane, I want to be confident that the pilot actually knows how to fly the plane and doesn't just have access to that information. What's more, even having knowledge isn't a good indicator of intelligence. I'm sure we've all come across people who seem to know a lot of stuff about a lot of things, uh, but what they say just doesn't seem worth listening to. If you haven't come across these people, you know, there's TikTok and places like that. Anyway, but even intelligence isn't a good indicator of wisdom. Someone once said that intelligence doesn't lead a person to find truth. Instead, it just enhances their ability to justify their own beliefs. According to a 2019 article from The Guardian, research shows that smart people are more susceptible to fake news and conspiracy theories. I found that article and I thought, that's great. I can 
didn't use that. And then I realized it was written on the 1st of April. I think I'm a pretty intelligent guy. Maybe that proves the point. I'm not sure. Richard Dawkins, in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, said that biology is the study of complicated things that have the appearance of being designed with a purpose. Now, Richard Dawkins is an atheist and denies the existence of God. There's no doubt he's an intelligent guy and he has a great deal of knowledge. But that doesn't lead to wisdom. In fact, the Bible calls him a fool. Psalm 14 says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. What does Psalm 119 tell us? Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. God's word gives us light to walk by, but more so, it gives us insight for discernment, for wisdom. Verse 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Multiple times throughout the psalm, the author calls on God to give him understanding. Verse 34, give me understanding so that I may keep your law. Verse 73, give me understanding to learn your commands. Verse 125, give me discernment. Verse 144, give me understanding that I may live. Verse 169, give me understanding according to your word. God's law brings wisdom, but it's not just wisdom that's an extension of knowledge or intelligence. It's not based on what we know. It's based on who we know. And it's not something that we get given once and, and that's it, like passing an exam. But instead, it's something that comes over time as we spend time in God's word. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. It's not a lamp that immediately lights up everything, our entire future laid out before us. It's a lamp for our feet to see where we take the next step, to make sure we don't trip over things like the Kiwi Ninja. It's a light to walk by, to live by, and to choose our path by. But the more time we spend in God's word, the brighter that lamp for our feet will be. In verse 32, he says, I will run in the path of your commands, for you have broadened my understanding. I think that's a wonderful picture. As we start to spend time in God's word, he gives light to our path. And as we spend more and more time with God, he gives us more and more light until we can run in the path of his commands, confident uh, that our God will guide our way. So God's law brings liberty. God's law brings light. The third L we look at is life. God's law brings life. Now the writer does two things with life in this psalm. First he sees God's law as restorative and life-giving. Uh, in verse 93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. On the other hand, the, the writer also asks God for life to enable him to keep the law. In verse 88, in your unfailing love, preserve my life, that I may obey the statutes of your, your mouth. The phrase, preserve my life, occurs ten times in the psalm, and the idea of God providing life for the purpose of obeying God's law appears another five times. For the psalmist, God isn't a remote and hostile dictator who demands his laws be carried out against the threat of punishment for failure. Instead, not only does life come from obeying God's laws, 
but God himself provides the very life required to keep his commands. We are required to keep God's law, but it's God who provides the ability to do just that. Of course, we still fail to live up to God's standard, and this was no different for the psalmist. Listen to how he finishes the psalm in verse 176. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your, com- your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. It's not that the psalmist says, if only I can be good enough, then God will accept me. If only I read my Bible every day, if only I pray more, if only I stop doing this or that, if only, if only. The psalmist is very aware of his failings, but he's totally reliant on God. They've strayed like a lost sheep. Earlier, we hear that same humility and reliance on God. Verse 36, turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servant so that, so that I'll be liked, so that I'll avoid punishment. No, so that you will be feared. The end goal of our obedience to God's word is not our salvation. We don't earn eternal life by being good. The end goal of our obedience to God's word is God's glory. We said earlier that God's laws are part of the revelation of himself, which he's given to us through his word. And he gave us the ultimate revelation of himself when he sent Jesus, his son, into our world. Not through our goodness, but through his life death and resurrection Jesus became the ultimate fulfillment of God's law bringing us liberty from the bondage of sin and death bringing us understanding and discernment as the light which shines in the darkness and bringing us life not just here and now but eternal life in perfect relationship with God and with each other and he didn't do all this for our glory but for his glory So what do we make of all this? In Psalm 119, we hear the prayer of someone who delights in spending time in God's word, who finds freedom and wisdom and life springing from every page. And that freedom, wisdom and life come as we spend time in God's word. The Bible is, for the most part, something known as meditative literature. It's designed to be read and reread and mulled over and thought through and then read again. It's the story that God has given us to tell us who he is, not just as a bunch of facts to give us knowledge about God, but through the help of the Holy Spirit to help us to truly know God. As a book left closed on the shelf, it does absolutely nothing. But by reading it, by meditating upon it, we allow God to speak liberty, light, and life into us. Some of you may already have a regular reading Bible, Bible reading routine, and that's great. I encourage you to keep that going. For those who don't, whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or are still looking into it, um, I want to encourage you to spend time reading the Bible. A couple of years ago, I started spending time, uh, setting some time apart each morning. Uh, just to read a few chapters of the Bible. 
I started at the very beginning. They tell me it's a very good place to start. And uh, worked my way from Genesis through to Revelation and then started again. I'm nearly at the end again. It's worked well for me and it's probably my favourite time of the day. A friend of mine prefers to jump around a little bit more. He's, he's grabbing a bit of Old Testament, a bit of New Testament, and he's printed up a, a sheet of all the chapters in the Bible and he marks them off so he knows his progress. It doesn't really matter how you do it. You may even prefer to get an audio book and listen to the soothing tones of David Suchet reading to you. If you find the Bible a bit too complicated, maybe take a browse through some videos or other material at somewhere like thebibleproject.com. Their videos are a really good way of seeing how the books of the Bible fit together as a whole, as a unified story leading to Jesus. Because if what I've said is true, if the Bible really is God's way of revealing himself to us, and if through scripture he's providing a way for us to be in relationship with him and relationship with each other, how can we just leave our Bibles collecting dust? I encourage you to read the Bible. Spend time in God's word. That's where we find true freedom, true wisdom, and eternal life. That's where God reveals himself to us. And it's through spending time in God's word that we too may find absolute delight in God's law. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the freedom, the wisdom and the life we find in your word. We thank you for the way you have chosen to make yourself known to us so that we can live in relationship with you and with each other. We especially thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who lived, died and rose again as the ultimate fulfillment of your law. We ask that you will cause us to long to spend time in your word, entice us with freedom, draw us in with light and grant us life that we might know you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.